Welcome to What's the Data Point from Citizens Budget Commission and Gotham Gazette. I'm Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. I'm Maria Doulis from the CBC. Thanks for joining us here on this episode. We're excited for the discussion ahead today. Interesting, meaty topic as usual here on What's the Data Point. Just a reminder, if you're not subscribed, please find us on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe and even leave a review. And you can always send us feedback on episodes or suggestions for future episodes. You can find us on Twitter. I'm at TweetBenMax and Maria's at Maria Doulis. And of course, you should always check out the latest from Gotham Gazette at our website and CBC at the CBC website. Some really interesting reports and blog posts and such from CBC lately. I'm trying to keep up uh, with everything coming out of CBC, uh, which is great. So... On to today's episode of the podcast. Today we are joined by Stephen Ide, who is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute for Policy Research and a contributing editor for City Journal, Manhattan Institute's policy journal. Stephen is the author of a new report that we'll be discussing today, and it's about New York's inpatient mental health care system. Cuts to state psychiatric hospital beds has coincided in recent years with increasing mental illness-related pressures on the city's homeless services and criminal justice systems, Stephen writes in the piece. Stephen, welcome and thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. And before we jump into that conversation, here's Maria with today's data point. 2,268. The average daily number of people in adult psychiatric centers in New York State as of April 2018. This is an astounding decrease from a peak of more than 93,000 people in 1955. What's precipitated the decline? Shifting medical, social, and political opinions and a series of court cases and statutes have put this state and others on a path of deinstitutionalization, meaning large-scale institutions, what we call asylums, were shuttered in favor of less restrictive settings and community-based care. So largely going from inpatient care and long-term stays to outpatient care and shorter stays and perhaps sporadic care. To discuss the outcomes of these policies is Steve and I. Welcome. So let's start sort of at the beginning here. Um, maybe explain what you were looking to research, what you, you know, what sort of you decided to take on and why. Yeah, well, um, this, Maria mentioned the term deinstitutionalization. So over the past Several decades, beginning in, let's say, the 1950s, um, New York, like states across the nation, began shifting from what had been an almost exclusively inpatient form of mental health care. The public mental health care system back then was almost exclusively inpatient towards an outpatient-oriented system. Um, now we try to care for mentally ill people in community settings as opposed to putting them in mental asylums, which is what we used to do. The public is generally familiar with this process, I think, but what the public is somewhat less familiar with was, is the fact that it's still going on. We are still um, trying to reduce the number of um, beds in state psychiatric centers, still trying to push more and more on this path towards an outpatient-oriented system of care. And um, we've known for some time, um, since at least um, the 1980s, that um, there has been some difficulties with this process, that we have failed to connect people with adequate care um, in the community. Um, as a result, we have many mentally ill people who are homeless, many, many mentally ill people who are in city jails. Um, and so I was sort of looking at, as this very recent um, decrease in state psychiatric beds has happened over the past just like five years, what has been happening in terms of city service systems, especially homeless services and the criminal justice system. And my findings that I show in the report is that the pressures that increase. We still have a very large number of 
seriously mentally ill people in city jails. Um, the number of mentally ill homeless people are rising. Um, and, and other factors I look at. So deinstitutionalization is still with us, and the challenges of deinstitutionalization, the problems with it, are still very much, much with us as well. So I think there's a lot to unpack there, but let's sort of start with, um, you know, everyone was in these institutions, and now everyone is not. Who's left in the beds that still exist in state psychiatric institutions? State psychiatric center, what they call state psychiatric centers, they're run directly by the state OMH, state government, who is traditionally, um, um, traditionally it was only state government who really dealt with mental health care. In the, in the height of the deinstitutionalization era, the pre-deinstitutionalization era, um, this was an enormous burden on state government. It's um, almost a third of the state's budget was devoted to running these asylums back in the 40s. Um, and, but now, as we've shifted its approach, um, city service systems have more responsibility in the state systems the state psychiatric centers are really dealing with very hard cases, people who have um, very severe mental illnesses, um, very unlikely they're going to thrive in a community setting. Um, um, the state is also responsible for um, the criminally insane, um, people who have not guilty for reason of insanity, cases, um, uh, dangerous uh, sexual offenders, places, instances like that. Um, we do have other psychiatric inpatient beds in general hospitals, which you can talk about a little bit more later. Um, that those are those are st that's still inpatient mental health care. But general hospitals like Bellevue or New York Presbyterian, um, they're treating difficult cases, but not the very hardest cases that the state psychiatric centers are dealing with. So, so this was an enormous expense, right? And so as the population has declined, how has the state funding changed. So in other words, has it decreased and has the burden been pushed on locals financially or have the dollars simply been tra transferred from state um, facilities to now pass throughs to local governments to provide the care directly? Well, yeah, well, we um, we fund, um, what we mean by outpatient care, um, a notable example would be supportive housing. Supportive housing, which is permanent housing, um, accompanied by wraparound social services that allows a seriously mentally ill individual to live in the community, in their own apartment. They have their own apartment, they have a lease, and they also have on-site services that can help them keep, help keep them housed. Um, New York State is by far the largest amount of supportive housing units in the nation. Um, we're always saying we don't have enough supportive housing, but compared to other states, we're like, really, um, we have a ton. Um, and there's so, a lot in the pipeline. Yes. Based um, on some of that outcry. Mm -hmm. Right, right. We can come back to that, but go mm -hmm. ahead. Yeah, sure. So um, um, Kendra's Law, the New York State's Assisted Outpatient Treatment Program, um, that is funded by, that's administered by counties um, and, and, this, and city government, but that's, that's a state law um, with state funding um, that, um, that enables also people who have had a rocky history of noncompliance with treatment. We think they're going to have another episode in the future, but in order to prevent that, we put them into a court-ordered treatment program that is, as long as they comply with their treatment program, we'll let them live in the community and we won't hospitalize them or anything else. So those are examples of, um, you know, outpatient programs that we didn't certainly didn't have in like the 40s and 50s that are have a lot of support or generally regarded both on the left and the right as successful, noble programs. When they succeed, that means people don't have to go back to state psychiatric centers um, so those are things that state government is, is do, along with its local partners and nonprofit partners, um, is doing that it wasn't doing in the past. 
And so let, let's break this down for a second. There, there, the data point for today is, is 2,268, and this is the average number of people in adult psychiatric centers in the state, right? And this is, as Maria said, down from a peak of 93,000, which is an incredible drop over decades. But as you say, there are also people with severe mental illness being treated in general hospitals. Do you have a, a, a number for uh, about what that census looks like? Because if we take this 2268, which is, seems like a very low number, at least relative historically, and this seems like the outcome of some aggressive state policy, um, it, it seems like from reading your report that y- you're arguing that this has gone too far yes. and that some of these folks who are being treated in general hospitals or not really being treated at all should very likely be in adult psychiatric centers. Well, uh, the, for, well, first of all, the general hospitals uh, have are, are about twice as many um, patients as state psychiatric centers, whether you're talking about the, at the state level or at the city level. So by the general hospitals, we mean especially um, New York City health bus hospitals and also the voluntary hospitals. Um, they, are, they, uh, they were not enormous providers of inpatient psychiatric care, way back in the day, um, but they increased um, their, their psychiatric care over the decades and to the point where, and as the state was phasing it down, they're no larger providers. Um, and that they're, they're, they have their own issues and they're not expanding their psychiatric um, capacity at the moment. Um, um, the cases that I'm especially concerned about are less so much the people who are in Bellevue or who are you know, in Mount Sinai or something, but the people who are on the streets, who are in jails, who have been riding what we call the institutional circuit of rattling around through various service systems and just not getting the care that they need. I mean, this is, you know, we're talking about seriously mentally ill people, people with schizophrenia, bipolar depression, not just any kind of mild mental health disorder. Um, would you and, agree that there was an over-institutionalization at one point? Yeah, anyone ag- would agree with that, yeah. Okay. That, that, um, and, you know, the Just making insti- sure we're all talking the same. Yeah, yeah right. I mean, you know, sometimes, yeah. you know, the, the president a few months ago threw out some I, comment about, it. well, we need to bring back the asylums or something like that. I mean, there's, there's no serious debate that we're going to reinstitute the system that we had like in the 50s, you know. Um, for one thing, they were very large providers of long-term care to senile elderly people, maybe as much as a third of the census was senile. You know, we would never put like old people back in institutions. Uh-huh. And because we have these other programs, we wouldn't need to. But you know, we're talking about a, vi- a very long swing of the pendulum right, so, by this point. So you would agree with that, but you think there's been an overcorrection. Yes, yes. Okay. Well, but what's the, I mean, what is really the remedy for this? Because the Olmstead Law is saying you've got to use the least restrictive setting, right? So what, I mean, so we have, by virtue of how this has devolved, right, we have a lot of the care taking place at H&H. We have a lot of the care being um, taking place in these uh, homeless shelters that are specifically dedicated to provide this. And your report mentions sort of the contacts, how the NYPD has had to sort of shift um, its training and protocols to be able to handle some of these cases. But what's, you know, so what's the path, though, to getting some of the people with the more severe issues who are not voluntarily seeking or accepting treatment on a regular basis to do that? Um, Yeah, well, um, you mentioned the Olmstead ruling. That's a Supreme Court ruling, so there are the state is under a legal obligation to provide care in the least restrictive setting, um, and we um, 
so there are these legal issues, um, both relating to that case and also just what the state law does as far as um, under what the what criteria you can commit somebody involuntarily to an inpatient facility. Um, I didn't go look deeply into the legal issues in my report, but that will certainly have to be addressed. But it's not just, um, there's also just this kind of philosophical viewpoint that we, that um, we have a kind of sense of shame about inpatient care. We talk a lot about kind of like stigma and mental health policy circles, and we really stigmatize, in my view, inpatient health care, mental health care a great deal. It's like it's, we're, we're ashamed of these facilities. We don't, we shouldn't, we don't want to have them at all. Look, these facilities are not like the old, they're not these like, um, you know, pits of misery, um, like they were back in the 40s and 50s. We have a number of regulations in place that you know, require standards of quality. Um, the, compared to what people are receiving on the streets or what happens to them in shelters, you know, um, I, I just think that the, we could do a lot to think more about reversing that sense of shame and try to think ways about ways in which we could increase access to the inpatient system instead of saying remaining on this kind of full speed ahead approach to more and more outpatient varieties because that's that's that continues to be the um the attitude um, um independent really of the legal requirements i think um this is this is what people in mental health care circles generally speaking um believe come back to kendra's law for a minute so kendra's law correct me if i'm wrong is sort of one of the um ties that binds the outpatient and the inpatient because you under Kendra's law you can be uh, mandated into an outpatient program but if you don't follow it or if things go awry you can be put into inpatient through a judge that's technically that's technically say it how you want to say Um, I mean Someone who fails to comply with their their program, who's in Kendra's law, would most likely be then considered for inpatient commitment. But the criteria under which you would consider that case is the same for anybody, regardless of whether or not they were in Kendra's law or not. It's not necessarily like a specific punishment. Um, The same procedures in place, even if someone was just like picked up the street yesterday without being in that program. But and but is it your contention that Kendra's law is not being utilized enough? Because that would seem like that argues for more outpatient. I think Kendra's law could be used more than it is. Um, New York State, I, I do want to emphasize, in the city are really leaders as far as outpatient treatment. I mean, nobody, no state in America has as good of an outpatient of a Kendra's law type program as New York State and city have. The De Blasio administration, to its credit, has been increasing the number of people in Kendra's law. They again, they have a kind of sense of shame about this because they don't. They're not, not, I think, don't know quite what to think about involuntary forms of commitment, even if it's talking about an involuntary outpatient mm-hmm. um, program. Um, but the numbers have been increasing, and, you know, I think probably we do need to look, look it's, you know, it's like it has great outcomes. We have very, ter- we have great data on Kendra's law. Um, this is a state law. Yeah. That has to be uh, reestablished every few years. It's technically not permanent. Yes, right. technically still right. this experiment that we're seeing if it works and maybe we'll make it permanent. Well, there's a lot of things like that that they always revisit. Right. But, um, so how does that work? Just say a little bit more about it. I mean, what are the – what's sort of a, a typical example of how Kendra's Law happens, somebody is, who's, is, an, you know, is used? Somebody who has had a history of, you know, not um, – 
complying with their medication. Um, you have to be an adult over 18, somebody who has probably had run-ins with um, the criminal justice system in the past, probably had run-ins with hospitalization who were, you know, it's a, we think they're going to have problems again because that's their past record indicates. And they need this kind of like, this kind of black robe effect of having this regular process of going before the judge, making them understand that they really need to um, stick with their treatment program or else they, um, you know, they're going, they're going to fall back into the, the cycle that they were in, into. Um, and it has demonstrated ability to reduce homelessness among the, the, the population in the program, reduce hospitalization, um, reduce um, involvement with the criminal justice system, and many other outcomes that the OMH has been trapping, tra tracking since the law was first passed. So I want to go back to something you said earlier about the stigma, which I think is very real. Um, and the other person who I've heard talk about this very prominently is Shirlene McRae, right? And she's sort of at the forefront of this Thrive NYC initiative under Mayor de Blasio, and there's been significant funding attached to this, right? About like $200, $300 million annually now that the, the programs have been scaled up. And your critique of this program is very interesting, and I, I want to read what you wrote. Um, so Thrive NYC is best seen as an attempt to provide mental health care to disadvantaged populations with disadvantage understood in a socioeconomic sense. Providing mental health services to populations that are disadvantaged by virtue of their mental illness is a different challenge. What's your critique? Leaving aside this conventional critique that some people have of it, that it's just a way to boost the First Lady's political profile. I'm a policy person. I, of course, have no opinions about politics. Right. So, um, no opinions. Just the numbers for us, right? right. Yeah. Um, Thrive NYC, I think, you know, the, a generous way to put it is that it's, it's trying to increase access to mental health care services for um, low-income populations to give them the kind of access and the kind of services that middle-income, upper-income populations have long enjoyed. Um, so they're targeting a lot of resources to, like, kids in struggling school, underperforming schools. A lot of money. A lot of the money is going to things like that. Um, this is not necessarily – it's not necessarily the case that kids in underperforming schools, they, they may, many social ills result from that situation, but it's not necessarily untreated serious mental illness, not necessarily at the top of that list. These are – Right, emphasis on the word serious. Yeah. Right, that's, I mean, that's people, a lot of the demarcation. Right, so when, when, they, when you see the subway ads and they, they emphasize that everybody has mental health issues, mental health disorders affect – you know, one in four New Yorkers, uh, they're not talking about serious mental illness. It's not talking, one in four New Yorkers do not have schizophrenia. Um, um, so uh, there is a debate to be had, I think, as to what government's responsibility is to people who have kind of mild anxiety and don't have resources or access to forms of treatment for that. Um, but I don't think there's any real debate as to what the government's responsibility is to somebody with untreated schizophrenia. I mean, everybody would say, yes, we have to help that person, and we need the government, the public sector, needs to, needs to step up. Um, and we are not doing very well with that problem, the untreated schizophrenia problem. We haven't, we haven't been doing a good job in it for many decades. So I kind of feel like at the very least we need a program that targets that program and Thrive NYC is just not that program. I mean, it touts itself as a comprehensive program. And, um, you know, if it were just a program about providing, you know, school children with, um, in, in underperforming schools with mental health care services, 
I don't know how much I would strongly object to it, but every time there's a subway pushing or a spectacular tragedy or a cop shooting a, um, a civilian with severe mental illness and the mayor goes on the Brian Lair show and he's asked about it, the mayor said, well, we're take, we're, you are doing something about their problem. We're doing Thrive NYC. Well, Thrive NYC is really not going to help prevent the subway pushing. There's a lot to discuss there, but I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to go into it. We just got a couple more minutes. Um, and we're talking with uh, Stephen Ide of the Manhattan Institute, who has a new report out about uh, deinstitutionalization in New York. Um, but what should this? So you say the city is not doing enough about people with serious mental illness, and very often, as you just indicated, these problems come into the public view around violent incidents. Um, again, even if they're a relatively small number, they're often, you know, a horrific incident, like you mentioned, a subway pushing or a, or someone winds up in an alt, in a, a altercation with the police and is, is shot. Um, so what should the city be doing on those things, what, or the state? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, there was room to criticize the city, um, but um, in my report, I'm really trying to turn the focus to, towards the state, because the state, not only does it operate the psychiatric centers, it you know, it sets these regulations, and so, um, and it has a lot of, you know, leadership here in terms of um, where we're going in f- as far as the de- inpatient versus outpatient question, and I think that we've um, we've just gone too far. We shouldn't keep on the path that we're going, and we need to think more about um, increasing access to inpatient mental care instead of mental health care instead of reducing access at a time in which untreated serious mental illness is clearly not under control. I mean, you can look at what's happening in the jails with the, 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 poli- the calls to the police, of- the police officers to make. Um, it's not under control. A, psyche- a bed in a psychiatric center is one of our most crucial resources that we have to address that kind of problem, like the guy that the, or that the cop unfortunately shot because he thought he had a gun. Um, that's, um, this is something that's one of our best tools to address that problem, and yet we're, we keep thinking, no, no, we don't want to use that tool. We want to use something better. Um, and at a certain point, I think we've we've overlearned the lesson of but the institutionalization. From the state perspective, is there a geographic mismatch issue? In other words, are these centers and the capacity located, say, upstate, when incidence is really downstate? And so, in some ways, what you want is not necessarily an increase in resources or funding, but sort of shifting it to where most appropriate. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I was focusing on state psyche, state facilities in the city what the state is doing there. Um, I don't want to minimize that it is a very expensive system to run. Quality mental health care, especially in an inpatient setting, it's just going to be expensive. Um, And so um, we have to certainly reconcile ourselves to that. Um, Whether upstate is underserved, um, I don't know. I'd have to look more carefully about that. Or overserved, I'd have to look more carefully about that. And I don't think one of the central pieces of what you're critiquing is the uh, transformation plan. I don't know if we've used that that phrase yet, but do you want to just take in our last minute or so here, just talk a little bit more specifically about that? Or have we sort of done that, but just but not named it? <laughs> yeah, I think we've done. That's yeah. basically, you know, um, no one should be forgiven for not knowing that particular brand name. But that's well, the, the name. important to sort of name. Yeah, yeah the, that's what the, the, the name of this, that the state OMH uses to describe what it has been doing since fiscal 2015 to reduce um, beds and inpatient census and state psychiatric center and instead reinvest resources in um, community mental health care. Mm -hmm. Um, And so last thing for me, um, so just to be clear as big takeaways here, um, 
your contention is with the pendulum swinging too far in the direction of deinstitutionalization and a lack of use of inpatient psychiatric beds, uh, moving away from an increase in the use of general hospital inpatient treatment even, but going back to where services and uh, institutions are most sort of focused on delivering this type of care is a key change that you're arguing for, that that not only should there be more of those beds utilized, but also the there should be the shift away from even using the general hospitals. Well, I mean, the general hospitals just have a lot of financial problems at the moment, especially New York City Health Plus hospitals. And they, they did a lot over like 60s, 70s, and 80s to pick up the slack in terms of the need for inpatient mental health care, but they seem to be not very well positioned to do that right now. So we want to figure out a way to help them do, do more inpatient psychiatric care, we're going to probably have to, you know, think about where they are generally speaking. And I don't want to say that, you know, this, but we do, we, we are going to need them. Maybe we can increase their capacity, but I certainly think we need to increase capacity in the state's facilities. And and just as an addendum to that, in in your, uh, let's say, change in, in the way that practices are done now, people encountered in the criminal justice system, people encountered in the shelter system, people encountered just on the street living, you know, seemingly living on the street would be more strongly referred, moved into those types of treatments as opposed to the tendency right now to either leave them untreated or put them into outpatient programs. Or, or come up with yet another program to say, you know, I mean, there's this, there's a New York Times article just within the past week about um, Olmstead and the, um, you know, the, the group home situation where people, not only, first people moved out of psychiatric centers into group homes, then group homes are seen as too restrictive as well, so they're put in their own own apartments, and it's been a disaster for some people. But yeah, and so this, it was this theory that everybody can thrive in a community setting, and the theory has been proved wrong for too many people. So we need to move back to more, you know, essential, what, quote, restrictive type settings. Um, because other, because th- for many people, they're just not going to get the treatment that they need outside of such a setting. Stephen Eid uh, is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, has a new report, Systems Under Strain, Deinstitutionalization in New York State and City. A lot to think about there, and perhaps we'll have to have someone on from the city or the state to talk about their response, their perspective on, uh, on some of the things you're pointing out. But thanks for being here today. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Bye. 